Move Forward Radio is brought to you by ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. We all know by now that COVID-19 can strike anyone and that its effects in any given individual can range from being invisible to necessitating intubation and a respirator for patients who can't breathe on their own. What you might not know is that when a person has symptoms of any kind, and even during recovery from the most severe effects of the novel coronavirus, physical therapists are helping, and physical therapy will continue to be needed by many who get COVID-19. Talia Pollack is the education chair of the American Physical Therapy Association's cardiovascular and pulmonary section and a board-certified clinical specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy. She's well familiar with the ways in which COVID-19 can affect the heart and lungs and what physical therapists can do to help those afflicted regain function and movement and reclaim their lives in the near and long term. She joins us to share those insights and to relay important messages about how best to cultivate and maintain optimal heart and lung health all of the time. How can individuals live a healthful life in general to give them the best chance of fighting any illness? And specifically, what can be done by otherwise healthy people to strengthen our bodies now against the worst potential effects of COVID-19? Talia is also involved in an initiative that's educating rehabilitation providers nationwide about the benefits of physical therapy for people whose pre-existing conditions place them at a greater risk of serious health consequences should they contract COVID-19. She talks about that, too. Here's our conversation with Talia. Talia, thanks for joining us today on Move Forward Radio to provide listeners with some important and timely information during this COVID-19 pandemic based on your clinical expertise and also for providing some evergreen advice on maintaining optimal heart and lung health. Uh, ventilators and personal protective equipment for uh, healthcare providers and non-healthcare uh, workers, and social distancing are, are topics that are in the uh, in the news on a daily basis these days. Physical therapists might not be the first healthcare responders who come to mind in terms of preventing and treating uh, heart and lung issues. But what many may not know is that uh, PTs play uh, an important role in helping people both avoid those issues and restore uh, healthful mobility uh, for those who've experienced heart or, or lung impairment. In fact, many PTs are on the front lines treating patients with COVID-19 in a variety of settings, in the hospital, in outpatient clinics, at home, even remotely through telehealth uh, technology. So, uh, first of all, before we address matters related to COVID-19, Talia, can you just sort of give us a brief overview of the ways in which physical therapists help people in normal times, quote-unquote normal times, when it comes to prevention and rehabilitation of heart and lung diseases? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to talk to you today and to get some some good information out about PTs that that may not be common knowledge. In terms of prevention of heart and lung disease, you know, one of the biggest things we all know and we all hear about is exercise and movement. And physical therapists being, you know, movement professionals, movement experts, we can help you move in a way that will allow you to do the activities that that keep you healthy. You know, everybody's different. Exercise speaks to people in really different ways. You know, it might look like CrossFit for some people. It might be a walk for others. It might be yoga. It might be biking, whatever it is. You know, our job as movement professionals is to help 
help you optimize your body so that you can participate in the activities that really support good heart and lung function. So that's, I, I think, you know, in the outpatient setting anyway, that's really where I think we bring a lot of value. You know, I'm, we're not here to tell you which movement is right and wrong. You know, movement is going to speak to your body in, in different ways. So we're here to help you find ways to move better so that you can so that you can participate. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to tell you what's right and wrong. We're here to make recommendations based on what it is that you enjoy and what speaks to your body. But if exercise doesn't speak to you at all, as it, as it doesn't does to some people, you might want to uh, give them hints on how you can uh, get it to raise its voice. No, that's very true. And I think there's so much in the media, um, especially now, you know, there's a lot of free fitness uh, resources online or Instagram, social media, whatever. And I think sometimes that can be hugely intimidating to folks who don't typically exercise. And so what I would say there is, Go for, you know, just try moving your body going for a walk, short walk, mm-hmm. if that's in your in your purview to do. And just sort of see very gently, you know, how movement can really help you clear your mind. You know, take that deep breath um, while you're out and you're not in front of your screen working or helping to do school at home or care for someone at home. Um just get out and move in the in the most basic functional way. And I think walking is a great way to sort of introduce movement. You know, it doesn't have to be burpees. It doesn't have to be <clears throat> lifting heavy weights or doing a bunch of push-ups. Any movement is beneficial. Well, well so all, that speak, all that speaks to uh, prevention. Can you talk a little bit about rehabilitation and the physical therapist role there for, for heart and lung uh, issues? And this is, no pun intended, this is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I have worked extensively uh, for uh, almost 10 years now into, in the intensive care unit with patients who have had heart and lung surgeries. So from a basic bypass surgery, which isn't so basic, to more involved, uh, more involved surgeries. So in the hospital setting and in the intensive care unit, it's really interesting. Most people, most patients anyway, we're not the people that they expect to see. And it's so funny. What are you doing here? You know, I'm not here to exercise. I just had a surgery. What are you doing here? <laughs> and um, it's it's so interesting to just sit down and have discussions uh, with folks that, hey, you know, we're here and we're going to help you do the most basic getting up and moving around today. We're going to sit on the side of the bed. We're going to stand because we know there's so much great science that tells us how wonderful just sitting upright is for a person who's just had a big surgery. You've had a breathing tube in during your surgery and your lungs really need to kind of kick back into full gear. And so when you sit upright, it really gives your, your lungs a chance to expand and fill with air. And patients will tell you that it it is not the most pleasant sensation the first time it happens. Mm -hmm. But once you get up and start moving, you really start to feel more engaged and more like yourself and you're on a bunch of medications and you have lots of things attached to you and it's extremely overwhelming. But what we try to do is just educate and orient and just take it slowly initially so that patients feel comfortable with us. They feel comfortable in their bodies, which just got a major insult, a major trauma, Mm -hmm. and then gently introduce very basic movement after that standing sitting up to a chair. Maybe we stand at the sink and and get cleaned up a little bit. Maybe we take a, 
you know, hopefully, you know, we end up taking a walk down the hall and we've eased you into it so that it's not so fearful. And we're making sure we're looking at all of your vital signs and all of your numbers. And most importantly, we're looking at you to see how are you doing with this? What do you think about it? How does it feel to your body? Do we need to rest? We have a good, solid knowledge of how disease looks on a person and how disease can look when somebody gets up to move. So we really try to pay very close attention to that. That's paramount in critical care and in hospital settings. Just watch your patient. Watch how they respond to what you're asking them to do, and they will guide you. Once patients are out of the initial woods um, and say they're, they're home, I mean, they're, they're still going to have a need for physical therapy, right? Oftentimes people do, and that's where our home health colleagues are, are extremely important. I mean, I think that they are some of the, the frontline folks who really go into the home and say, okay, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How are you moving around in your home? Are you able to get around safely? What can we do in your home? How can we modify your environment? Do you need another, do you need a, something to walk with that's a little different than what you had in the hospital? You know, how can we really facilitate you being safe and comfortable in your own home? And also, those home health PTs don't have an emergency call bell to call a nurse or a physician if they would need help. They need to be able to, and they do it very well, you know, assess the patient, make sure everybody's safe, make sure everybody's feeling well and responding appropriately to, to activity and moving around. And if they're not, um, a home health therapist can, you know, certainly phone a friend, but I mean, they don't have somebody, you know, right down the hall. So they are really good at looking at a situation and sizing it up. So the home health physical therapist can offer a lot in terms of, again, just looking at the home environment and making sure that, you know, it's safe for the way the a patient is moving around and then prescribing exercise, you know, walking programs, a lot of strengthening activity to really kind of get patients over that hump to then go and participate in an outpatient cardiac or pulmonary rehab program that's typically run by nurses, exercise physiologists, and physical therapists so that they can, you know, it kind of just gets them over that initial post-operative phase to where they can then tolerate, you know, more ex more exercise and activity, really get those lungs, you know, used to moving around. Um, uh, Talia, I wanted to ask you, you, you had alluded earlier to, to some of the other health professionals who are involved uh, with, uh, with these patients. Uh, physical therapists are part of a multidisciplinary team who provide patient care in acute care and, and hospital settings. Can you talk a little bit about that team effort and the PT's role in it, and, and perhaps, if, if appropriate, a little bit about how that role may be challenged by the, the current pandemic? I think this is one of my favorite parts of my job is collaborating with physicians, nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurses' aides, respiratory therapists. All of those health professionals are vital, especially in critical care, are vital in, you know, getting our patients healthy and getting our folks out of the ICU. So generally speaking, in the hospital, we will round together, which basically means we walk around in a big group outside a person's room. And occasionally, you know, certainly if someone's awake and able, we'd like to go in and engage them. And we sort of talk about the plan for the day, the short-term goals, the long-term goals, and then kind of where everybody's discipline sits in terms of taking care of, of that patient. 
So, for example, we may have a patient who's been with us for quite some time who hasn't been able to get up and move around for various medical reasons. And then as we round in the morning, the medical team will say, okay, I think we're ready. You know, Talia, what do you think? And then we'll discuss it. We'll have a really nice, educated, friendly discussion. We'll make a plan. And then we communicate that plan to the patient and their family or their support system that's with them, hopefully, so that everyone is on the same page. You know, with a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and it's important that our message is consistent. So that's really one of the most satisfying things about working in the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think a big satisfaction factor for patients so that everyone that comes in the room is is giving them the same message. Here's our plan for today. And I think that makes people feel a lot more secure. I mean, it's a it's an uncertain environment. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of noises. There's a lot of people. And I think any reassurance and consistency that we can provide is paramount for, for patients to feel somewhat normal in that circumstance. Well, given the given social distancing and given current conditions, how how possible is it for that uh, that team to you know, physically get together and 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 visit a, a patient? Well, it looks really different uh, now. You know, people are standing, but you know, further away from one another. But it's really just the you know having the appropriate amounts of personal protective gear. So all the things you're seeing on television, the masks, the gowns the splash guards over the face, you know, there really has to be enough of that protective equipment Mm -hmm. for us to function in that way. And, you know, we've certainly seen, and I've certainly heard from, from colleagues as well, that oftentimes, you know, PTs aren't the first line of defense at this point because, you know, we have to conserve the PPE, the, the personal protective equipment for nurses, physicians, and respiratory therapists. And we also have to, you know, wait and see if the patient is actually medically appropriate, you know, for us at that time. And when, when the medical team um, and, you know, the, the rehabilitation staff kind of decide, then that's when we get involved. So it's not every day all the time in this particular scenario, because we are trying to limit people in and out. And we certainly don't want to be vectors, you know, for our colleagues or other patients in the hospital. So each, it appears from what I'm hearing that each hospital system um, kind of has a different plan based on how many cases of COVID-19 patients they have, or how mm-hmm. much staff they have. So it really is very dependent on your institution and kind of where you are geographically and how, how the, you know, are you in a hot spot? Are you not? But there are some general guidelines that have been released on how to utilize physical therapists. And I think that's what a lot of people um, are using, but, you know, you have to kind of customize it to your institution and environment. Talia, uh, you're the education chair for the uh, cardiovascular and pulmonary section of the American Physical Therapy Association, and, and you're deeply involved in something called the PACER Project, which stands for Post-Acute COVID-19 Exercise and Rehabilitation. Um, it's an initiative through which board-certified clinical specialists in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy and other PTs with pertinent expertise are spreading education to other rehabilitation providers across the country about the optimal use of physical therapy for people who are at greater risk for serious health consequences should they contract COVID-19. We're talking about individuals who are older, uh, people who have uh, chronic health conditions such as diabetes, uh, COPD, uh, hypertension, and, and heart disease. And the, uh, the PACER project covers everything from posture, breathing, and ventilation to considerations that are specific to children, uh, older adults, uh, people receiving care at home. Can you talk about some of the ways that PTs are working to ensure the best care for people within these particularly vulnerable populations? 
Absolutely. I think the PACER project itself is one of the the largest collaborations in a very short period of time that I've seen, you know, across all areas of physical therapy. Um, our section, the cardiovascular and pulmonary section, you know, it's a, it's a small portion of our professional organization. And within that section are individuals like myself who work in hospitals or critical care or outpatient pulmonary rehabs or really anyone who has an interest in this area. It's really important that we all sort of come together, put our resources in one place, and then disseminate those resources to the public. I mean, you don't even have to be a member of the American Physical Therapy Association to get access to these resources right now. And I think what the big push is here, what the inspiration for this was, is we we looked at this pandemic and we've looked at things like SARS and sort of what happens after this initial period. And that's where I think a lot of rehabilitation professionals, PTs, are going to really come into play is where we're, you know, we've, we've focused a lot in the last four weeks, and rightfully so, on the very acute needs of patients. What are our needs in the hospital? Do we have all the medications? Do we have all the equipment that we need? And now that, not that that has been corrected, but that has been discussed and lots of great minds have, have come to the table to try to problem solve that, we're over here on the other side looking at, well, what happens after the fact? Mm-hmm. Many people are surviving this disease and they are going to have rehabilitation needs. You know, people are weak. They've been in the hospital for a long time. You know, our home health colleagues are going to see a lot of these patients. Our uh, colleagues who work in skilled nursing, rehabilitations, and other rehab centers are going to see these folks and may not see this type of this cluster of symptoms and how it looks on a person. They may not see that as frequently as I might see it in a hospital. So we want to put all of our heads together and try to get this information to all areas of physical therapists because we are all going to be providing care and we just want to do it in the most evidence-informed, consistent way. So that's really was the inspiration for the PACER project was to really look at the impact, the rehab ripple, as uh, Kyle Ridgway, the acute care PT, has, has called it, you know, there's going to be a huge influx of patients with needs and we need to be at the ready to, to serve and, and to give them the, provide the best care we can. And that's really what the inspiration for this was. What are some of these health after effects likely to be? I think a lot of it's going to depend on the severity of your case of disease, you know, a mild or moderate case, you know, I don't know that there's an objective definition of it, but for someone who's perhaps been quarantined at home, and has not felt well, you know, for for a week or more, not able to get up and move around as much, still a little bit short of breath, achy joints, achy body, you know, you're just not going to move as much if you're feeling that way. So it could very well be that, you know, we know that if you don't move it, you lose it, right? So that residual weakness may impact, you know, a person's ability to care for their family or engage in their job or engage in exercise to keep their bodies robust and healthy. So those are those are the things that we anticipate we're going to be seeing. I mean, and, and other things, too. I mean, even folks who don't have COVID-19, folks who are potentially working from home or they're doing different, they're doing different jobs because maybe their primary job has been furloughed or something. 
you know, folks sitting at the desk at home, maybe their home work setup is not optimal. You might end up with some neck pain, some low back pain, some musculoskeletal stuff that could easily be addressed as well. So I think we're just trying to sort of project out as we come out of this, what are the needs going to be and how can we help? For the more moderate to severe cases of COVID-19, patients with COVID-19, you know, folks who perhaps have been hospitalized, but not in the intensive care unit with a breathing tube. And if you're sick enough to be hospitalized, it's probably safe to say that you're not moving around and getting up and doing as much as you would do at home. So the residual, that just that residual weakness and that cardiovascular endurance is going to be very limited by the time you get out of the hospital. And physical therapists who are, who are well-trained in strength training and endurance training and, and how to monitor a patient's response to exercise can really offer a lot to help folks get over that hump to re-enter their everyday lives and feel good about it. A quick break to encourage you to move. Physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of chronic disease, not to mention improved bone health, cognitive function, weight control, and overall quality of life. Simply put, more movement is the gateway to better health. Need some help to get going? Physical therapists are movement experts who use exercise, hands-on care, and patient education to help you meet your goals. You can contact a PT directly for an evaluation. Learn more and find a physical therapist near you at choosept.com. What about like a, a worst case scenario? Say, say someone has been intubated or required a machine for breathing assistance and, and may have spent days or even weeks on, on a respirator. In, in those mm-hmm. kinds of cases, what I've been reading is that the, those people's recovery journey is really only beginning once they regain the ability to breathe on their own and, and damage to their health can be long lasting and could in some cases even be permanent. How can physical therapy help in those kinds of extreme circumstances? Well, what you just described was something called a post-intensive care syndrome, which is actually, it's been coined a term for about 10 years, and it's really this constellation of things that happen to folks after being in the hospital or being mechanically ventilated for, like you said, days or weeks. And it things happen to a person physically, um, with your cognition and your thinking, and your emotional well-being. And so what we know to help stave off all of those things is early mobility. And that means getting into the intensive care unit with a physical therapist and getting up and moving around again in the most basic way possible, as long as it's safe to do so, meaning as long as your patient is medically stable, you know, their heart rate's good, their blood pressure's good, you know, their, their breathing is is better in 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 a good place to tolerate getting up and moving around because after all of that bed rest and potentially all of these medications just sitting up on the side of the bed is going to be a herculean effort. Mm-hmm. You know, just that that and that all of those basic things that we all take for granted become Mount Everest after you've been uh, mechanically ventilated or you've otherwise been critically ill for a long time. And it is, it is just the beginning. And we know that, you know, folks who have, have been through uh, an experience like this, you know, the, the thinking is a little bit cloudy 
And emotionally, you know, we're, we're talking about stress and depression and, and, and post-traumatic stress disease. I mean, it's, it's a, we can measure it objectively. It's been, it's been studied and it, it does, it has long lasting effects. And what's so interesting about it is, you know, one person may look very different than another. They may have had a very similar medical experience, but in terms of how all of these, this constellation of symptoms present themselves may be very different. One person may return to work in six months and be perfectly fine. And then someone over here, for whatever reason, may not leave the house, essentially. So physical therapists coming in in the early stages and then coming in at home and our, our outpatient colleagues, for sure, taking patients through the continuum of care, prescribing activity, prescribing movement to really help give them a sense of independence and control over their quality of life. I think that's really where we can, we can come in. And additionally, just coordinating other services. You know, it may be that our home health colleagues are, are some of the first folks that, that see patients potentially after their long ICU stay, especially now. Um, and if a, if a patient has some mental health needs or other, other needs, we can coordinate those services and reach out to our colleagues and make sure that our patients are getting the complete picture of care that they need. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is, though, e- even though this virus is new, and as a matter of fact, people always refer to it as the novel coronavirus because it is yes. so new, uh, these circumstances are not new to physical therapists. They're used to dealing with, uh, with patients who are in these kinds of conditions. Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. You know, we see a lot of chronic lung disease um, in the hospital, acute respiratory distress syndrome, you know, folks who have pre-existing lung conditions, maybe get sick and come in and, and require the need for a ventilator or respirator. So, you know, there are certain, there are certain aspects to, COVID, to the novel COVID-19 virus that are certainly different, but the way that we're going to approach these patients is going to be very, I would argue, very similar to how we would um, approach a patient with a very severe case of acute respiratory distress, you know, syndrome and take them through their ICU stay and hopefully out into the regular hospital and then home or to a rehabilitation facility. We're going to treat, you know, in terms of infection control, that's, that's hugely different, of course, and potentially our timing uh, as to when we can get to folks early. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, you know, we see it a lot and we're going to, we're, we're ready for it. We're going to treat it. We're ready for it. So let's segue from, from going from people with the most severe symptoms to trying to avoid any symptoms in the first place. Uh, right. What are some things that you would advise listeners, uh, regardless of their age or pre-existing conditions, to do to optimize their heart and, and lung health, uh, both because doing so will enhance their life in general and because it also will put them in better position to fight COVID-19 should they, should they contract it? I think that's a really good question, and there's a lot of there are a lot of really great resources out there. And I think the first thing that's you know personally I think is is paramount is really taking care of yourself. You know, taking care of your your mental state. This is a hugely stressful time for everyone, and everybody's experiencing you know different levels of it depending on their circumstances. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that this is a tough time, and it's okay. To have anxiety, it's okay to to be scared. It, it's okay. I think just acknowledging kind of what you're feeling is the first step because we know 
you know, anxiety and depression and stress, it, it really does have a, it can have a bad effect on our heart and lungs. And so if we can kind of just take a step back and see where we are mentally and sort of assess, well, what do I need to do to take care of myself? You know, do I need to schedule breaks in my day if I'm working at home? Uh, does a walk help? What, what is it? Really ask yourself, what is it that makes me feel a little bit clearer mentally and a little more grounded? I think that's the first. Mm-hmm. Um, hydra- hydration is another big one. Sleep, it's, it's hard to sleep when you're anxious or when your mind is racing. But anything you can do to help with your sleep hygiene, you know, put the screens away an hour before, get the TV out of the bedroom, you know, try to read before you go to bed if you can, listen to music, whatever it is uh, that makes that makes you feel a little bit more relaxed. Um, and certainly, you know, I'm always going to plug this. It's kind of, you know, exercise. Mm-hmm. However that looks to you, mm-hmm. movement. We don't even have to call it exercise. We can just call it movement because that's really what it is. Just getting up and walking. It could be walking from one end of the backyard to the other. It could be walking across the street. Whatever it is, get out of your environment and into a different one, if you can, and do that by moving your body. Hopefully, you can do it for 20 to 30 minutes a day. If you can't, start with five minutes. Start with 10 minutes. See how it feels. Experiment with it a little bit. Those are, are, are really good ways to kind of start. Well, it's kind of interesting, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the mental aspect and, and putting yourself in a, as good a frame of mind as necessary. There was an article in the Washington Post just this morning about how um, the the coronavirus uh, is starting to seep into people's dreams. So it seems to me if you want to get good sleep, uh, one of the ways in which you do that is putting yourself in a better frame of mind before you ever fall asleep, if if that's possible. I, I couldn't agree with that more. In fact, yesterday I was I was speaking to a friend and she described an extraordinarily vivid dream with, you know, a COVID-19 theme to it. And I, the only thing I can say, you know, I'm not a mental health professional, right. but the only thing that I can say there that I know has worked for me personally is to stay away from a constant stream of information and news. You know, if you can, put yourself on a little bit of a news diet. Mm-hmm. If you want to do it in the morning once, maybe in the afternoon, whatever it is, try to just decrease it a little bit. And perhaps, you know, that can be helpful to the sleeping, to the stress, the feelings of anxiety that we know put stress on our heart and lungs. I think those are, those are the things that we can control, right? You know, our response to things and our actions, our behaviors. So I think that in particular would be a great place to start. And I know that there are a lot of resources, and I think sometimes all of these resources on how to cope and all the exercise programs, it's like drinking from a hose. You know, it's just so much. It's so much all the time. And I think recognizing, hey, if this is too much information, I'm just going to shut it down for a little bit and just give yourself a break. Or, or, or to decide which uh, which drops from the hose to take and which to just let let pour out. Exactly, and I sometimes sitting down and writing that out is really helpful because this is you know some of these things to to sit and think about are are new to some of us. Okay, what really makes me you know kind of feel a little bit less anxious? You know what what really feels good to my body today? You know it may just be the simple act of writing it out and looking at it and saying okay. I just simplified it. I made my list. 
now I can sort of take an actionable step, whether well, it's exercise or a new diet or whatever. Uh, so, Talia, another question I have, uh, are, there, are there any simple breathing exercises that, that people can do to improve their, their lung health and, and well-being in, in, in these times and, and, and any time? Absolutely. I think a really beneficial, really basic breathing exercise is essentially what we call deep breathing, or you may hear it in yoga as belly breathing. You may hear it otherwise as diaphragmatic breathing. Either way, it's taking a, a big, deep breath to really get the air into the bottom portions of your lungs. If you think about your chest, if you think about your lungs as balloons, they expand like in a 3D kind of way, right? They just don't go out to the sides. They're going front to back. So when we take a, a deep breath, um, we really are able to fill our lungs. I think generally what we do, and myself included, you know, if there's a lot going on, if, if we're a little bit stressed out or we just get in the habit, we generally take kind of a shallow, shallow chest breath, essentially. So if you put your hand right on top of your sternum, You'll kind of feel, you take a breath in, just your normal breath, you'll feel your hand move up and down. That's your chest rising. What we would like to see happen is if you take your hand, put it on your stomach, right right about where your belly button is, you can take another hand and put it on your sternum, your chest bone. And what you want to try to do is take a big, deep breath in and feel that lower hand move, that, that hand that's right on top of your belly button, that's your that's your diaphragm. That's your diaphragm helping you move. It's a breathing muscle. So the better that muscle functions, the more it can in, um, support your lungs and your breathing. So how how often? I mean, how how many times would you need to do that to see some kind of a positive effect from it? Well, that's a good question. I I can't say how many times. Um, I can say that. Doing it at all, you know, three or four nice deep breaths, especially if you're feeling a little overwhelmed or if you just need to kind of take a minute. This is a it's a really good thing to do. So you're getting two you're getting two positive effects. You are getting a little bit more air, you're getting a little bit more air into your lungs, expanding your lungs, and you're also giving yourself a, a mental health break kind of while you do that. And we know that, you know, circulating more oxygen um, throughout your body is just beneficial in many, many ways. But I think just the act of stopping what you're doing and being aware of your breathing and aware of your body in the moment, there are a lot of um, beneficial effects there too in terms of emotional and mental health. So, so when people say, you know, uh, stand back and take a deep breath, that's, that's not just a cliche. That actually has that's, positive health that effects. Actually, there's great science. <laughs> There's great science to, to tell us that if we can slow the amount that we're breathing, because a lot of people will breathe really quickly and they talk really quickly, kind of like I'm doing right now. But if you just, if you slow your breathing down, your whole body just kind of takes a break. You know what I mean? Your whole body just kind of takes a little bit of a minute and kind of slow down and then, you know, re-engage in, in whatever it is that you're doing. But it's, it's twofold. You get a nice, um, get the physical, the physical motion of really kind of working that diaphragm and all those muscles around your lungs that are supporting your lungs and help you breathe. And then you also get the emotional kind of break while you're, while you're engaging in that deep breathing. So that's a very simple thing that takes a very little amount of time that can have a, a really big effect for, for that short expenditure of time. Oh, absolutely. You can do it anywhere. You know, while you're on your Zoom calls, you can uh, take your video off for a minute, <laughs> mute yourself on your microphone, and just, you know, just breathe a little bit. 
just take a deep breath. If you decide to go out and walk or engage in any other kind of exercise, you know, try it there too. Talia, one uh, one health behavior that you, you don't hear much about right now because it's kind of been pushed out of the – well, pretty much everything has been pushed out of the headlines by the pandemic, <laughs> so that's not the only thing. But um, we're seeing a lot of stories um, about the ever-increasing number of people, young adults in particular, who are, who are vaping. Uh, health officials were warning that vaping was risky behavior long before the coronavirus came along. Um, the virus has affected Americans of all ages, and, and, and even young people have, uh, have died from it. Uh, are individuals who continue to vape placing themselves at increased risk of serious coronavirus complications, just as traditional smokers are? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our lungs weren't designed to breathe anything but air, you mm-hmm. know, and I mean, I think they get a challenge enough as it is, you know, with whatever we breathe, um, you know, in our environment on the day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, our lungs are made of many different cells and all of those cells have different jobs. Altogether, the cells really provide a structure for the lungs, but more importantly, they help us fight off any of those negative effects of the insults, you know, the environmental stuff that we're breathing in, smoking, vaping, you know, that's what those cells are for. They're, they're to help us, but they, they will get overwhelmed. You know, constant, you know, vaping results in inflammation of those cells. And then they can't do their jobs very well. Their their structure uh, gets out of whack. They flatten out, and they're not able uh, to to really filter out and and per- perform the immune response that they're supposed to. So if you go into a COVID nineteen infection with lungs that are already inflamed and compromised, you're going to have a long road. Your your risk of having complications and and unfortunately even death goes way up. When you when you walk into a COVID nineteen infection with with lungs who, which are already diseased, and you know I, I was just reading, thirty seven percent of high school students high school seniors reported vaping in twenty eighteen, and it was up twenty eight percent from the year before. Wow! I mean that's that's amazing. I mean it's a I've seen lots of um, you know pediatric physicians pulmonologists you know, talking about what an really what an epidemic vaping is among young young people, and it's. It's really, it, it's really sad how popular it is. Yeah, it, I, I think it is definitely a, a public health issue that needs addressed. But most certainly, walking into a COVID nineteen infection with inflamed lungs for any reason is going to be you're going to it's going to be a difficult road. So just don't really just don't do it. <laughs> I, I, I guess. No. I, I just say no, exactly. I, I guess one. I guess one hope there would be that, um, to the extent that it's a, a social activity, uh, that's kind of out the window right now. So, so perhaps right. that will affect vaping to some degree. I'm hoping. I did see someone on the news this morning um, who's being interviewed, uh, who owns a vaping shop, who I guess is still considered an essential business wherever this was, and um, talking about his business actually increasing. So that that sort of broke my heart. Really, really. Well, that, that's interesting. Um, uh, Talia, you have an extensive history working in intensive care settings. Uh, and what's happening right now, uh, I, I would think, has to be unlike anything you've experienced. So, so what shortcomings in the healthcare system has this pandemic highlighted that you feel need to be addressed in the in the months ahead? Generally speaking, in healthcare, um, we always sort of function with just enough staff, just enough PPE, just enough equipment that we need. I think we need to be operating more in a surplus. 
whether that's human resources, staff, or personal protective equipment, ventilators, whatever. But generally speaking, we, we always operate right at enough or at a, at a deficit. And again, that depends on the setting you're in. That depends on a lot of different things. But in my experience, the, the two hospitals, two or three hospitals that I've worked in, both community and a large academic medical center, that's, that is generally the trend. And that contributes to a lot of different things for healthcare workers, burnout, you know, working at your capacity or beyond your capacity um, really sort of speeds up that, that burnout. But what I can say um, now is that the, I don't want to say heroics, but maybe, maybe that is the best term for it. What we've seen people, you know, healthcare workers rise to the occasion taking care of five ICU patients rather than two ICU patients to a nurse. People working extra hours, coming in really early, staying really late, um, therapists getting into the ICU and advocating for our ICU practice. I mean, it's even with not enough people and not enough equipment, you know, it's, it's amazing to see what healthcare workers are doing and how they have really risen to the occasion at great personal risk, right. I might add. Great right. personal risk to themselves, their families. It's not right, but it's just who they are. It's right. just who they are. We're in these helping professions. We're here to do the thing, and we're going to show up and do it no matter what. People well, are it, showing up dis- despite it, but we need to move as we move forward. There just needs to be more um, reflection on what's what's happening now, and preparation. We never have enough preparation. We're always reacting rather than being proactive. If we could just be a little bit more proactive. I think that this this would look very different right now. Do you foresee um, any long-lasting impacts of the uh, of the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic in the cardiovascular and pulmonary areas? And, and specifically, would you hope that this episode, when we look back on it, and hopefully there's going to be a time when we can look back on it, uh, yeah. might might have served as a, as a wake up call to all Americans to kind of do everything they can to keep their hearts and lungs as, as strong as possible. We don't have a lot of information yet, certainly, but given the extensive lung injury that that some of the most severe um, and moderately affected uh, patients have seen, we don't know what the long-term effects on the lungs are going to be. We don't know what the long-term effects. There are some some heart issues that can come along with COVID-19, you know, viral, viral heart infections that we don't know really what the long-lasting effect of that is going to be on, on a person's heart function. So I, I, I think we're just going to have to stay tuned, really, and collect really good information and data about our patients so that we can, you know, go back and look at this trend. But also really, you know, treat our patients, treat the person in front of us and meet them where they are. That's what we can do right now. And hopefully from those experiences, we can then kind of project into the future a little bit about what we, we may or may not see. But the, the best thing that we can do for ourselves at this point is just to keep our bodies moving in any way that we can that provides some physical relief, some mental and emotional relief, just to keep our whole body in, in one piece to, 
to continue um, making it through this very interesting time in our history. All the things that we've talked about in terms of healthy lifestyle and healthy behaviors, and I know that is just shoved down people's throats in the media and by their medical staff, but it really, it really is true. And really taking a look at how we take care of ourselves from a mental, emotional standpoint, all the way through to a physical standpoint, because it is all connected. It, it does all work together. And, and just, I think just an, an increasing awareness of, of taking care of ourselves and the people around us. I, I hope that is what we come away with from this for sure. Well, and as you said earlier, if 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 it if it helps you to not put so much pressure on yourself, not call it exercise. You don't have to call it exercise. Right. Just call it movement. Just just just, just walk. Just do simple things. You can walk. You can take a deep breath. I mean, it doesn't. Again, it does not have to be an intense, you know, fitness routine that you've seen on Instagram. It doesn't have to be that. If that works for your body, if that is what makes you feel. Um, just better in general, do that. But if that doesn't work for you, really sit down and examine maybe what could. And if you have questions, reach out to your physical therapist. We can give you options. A lot of our outpatient colleagues are are engaging in telehealth services. And if you have questions about, you know, what movement may be best for your body, considering maybe you have some other other things going on, reach out to us. We're happy. We're happy and willing to help you. We're here. Well, and that's an interesting point. You, 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 uh, you talked about being proactive versus being reactive. That's another way in mm-hmm. which you could be proactive uh, by approaching a physical therapist or another health professional rather than uh, having something that forces you to go to them. Oh, absolutely. I think that's where our outpatient colleagues are, are sorely underutilized as sort of a primary, a primary care um, entity. You know, we do a lot in terms of health promotion and injury prevention. We have a lot of education there, and I think that's overlooked sometimes. And really, if you if you have questions about how to start exercising um, or how to continue exercising or just incorporating movement into your day, hit up an outpatient PT via telehealth. Look at the APTA's website, choosept.com, and you can find somebody in your area to help you. Well, and and also the uh, the site that this uh, that this uh, uh, interview was going to appear on choosept.com, the uh, APTA's consumer website, and, and again, there are a lot of great uh, uh, resources um, that people can tap there. I, I think that's probably something our listeners ought to know. Oh, absolutely, no question. Choosept.com is a is a great resource. Really, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to recommend uh, an outpatient PT services or otherwise, you know, I, I definitely go to choosept.com and kind of look at the resources if it's in an area that I'm unfamiliar with, for sure. So I would definitely recommend folks going there. Uh, just, to, just to close, um, uh, Talia, is there anything else uh, you'd care for the public to know about uh, COVID-19, physical therapy, and or uh, heart and lung health? I think the the most important thing uh, during this time, I mean, I think it's been a common theme uh, throughout this chat, is just to take care of yourself. And if you don't know where to start, start by moving. Start by moving. Some clarity will come with that, and maybe you'll be able to get yourself into a place where you can really think about what what behaviors and what you need in your day to to support your your overall health. And I think, you know, 
clearly continuing to follow the CDC and the WHO's guidelines on social distancing and all the hand washing, uh, you know, wearing a mask in public, and, and not isolating yourself. You can social distance without being socially isolated. Human interaction, it, you know, just like our bodies were, were built to move, you know, our brains and our, our minds are built to interact with one another. And utilizing technology, you know, if that is available to you, use that uh, to interact with the people that you care about and the people that care about you. Check in with one another. Those would be my, th- those would be my recommendations. Well, uh, Talia Pollack, uh, thanks so much for speaking with us on Move Forward Radio. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciated the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Or find previous episodes at ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com.